The divide in America we all see today is clearly the worst since the war against secession. Is there something basic still about what our founders intended that we all can agree on that might offer some, dare I say, hope? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Aside from the far right's very effective use of a culture war to intentionally inflame today's divisions in America, might there be something common at the root of anger and frustration, which is unknowingly shared by both sides in the most serious alienation since the war against secession in the 1860s? Might there be something missing? A yearning for, we don't really know what, something missing from what our founders intended to be our commonwealth. They worked really hard to set up a system that enabled that to happen. And I think people are frustrated that it's not happening. And there's different approaches, that's for sure. Underlying the intensity on both sides is a sense that as today's guest Paul Glastras writes, perhaps America has crossed a point of no return toward inevitable decline. That's a real worry on the part of a lot of people. We kind of like America. Fear of this inevitable decline is a powerful motivator. Might there be evidence of a longing that were we to identify and understand it, might actually have the potential for a new solution based on that vision of our founders, something that might restore and renew the promise, the aspirations Lincoln talked about in his vision of forming a more perfect union, something that, while today manifests itself in deep, sometimes violent divisions, but might actually contain the seeds of a new unity a shared national purpose. As our guest writes, the race is on now to provide a new economic vision for our country. Paul Glastus is editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly, which in its January, February, and March print issues introduces a simultaneously new and very old vision. We'll be discussing on Keeping Democracy Alive today, the concept of Civic Republicanism. Civic Republicanism. It's what he calls a new economic paradigm, neither European-style socialism nor untethered libertarianism, something uniquely America first articulated by our framers in the 18th century. While pessimism is certainly rampant today, Glastris opines that America has a greater potential to achieve broad-based prosperity than any other country on earth by a mile, and that to tap that potential will require a plan, a vision. Articulating that plan is the goal 
of the new Washington Monthly special combination January, February, and March issues. Hey, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Fascinating subject. It's a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there's there's so much to talk about. Let, let's start with what motivates both sides in the 21st century divisions, what the sides actually hold in common, though not really consciously, not consciously at all, I think. And that is what you call the neoliberal regime. And as the term contains the pretty well understood word liberal, my sense is that there's not a lot of understanding of the meaning of the word neoliberal, very different from liberalism. You say neoliberalism is supported today by both parties, Democrat and Republican. What is this neoliberal economic order? When did it come to power? And in, in what ways is it offensive to both and lies at the roots of today's breakdown economically and politically? Well, Bert, neoliberalism is a $20 word for a way of looking at the role of government that is going to be very familiar to your, re to your listeners, especially those of a certain age who remember what life was like in America in, say, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and what it became in, in the 80s, 90s, and the last couple of uh, decades. Um, going back to the founding, um, America's gone through different cycles where they, our, our, our political leaders have understood that there is a role for government absolutely constitutionally based obligation for government to provide opportunity for average people so that average people can make a respectable livelihood. To give you one of a thousand examples, right? The opening of the West, um, first with the Northwest Ordinance and then with the, with the uh, Homestead Act was an attempt by government at the expense of Native Americans, it should be said, but by government to carve out small land holdings for individual families um, and uh, so that they could have land on which to build farms, livelihoods, and so forth. It wasn't just equal opportunity. It was actually providing the assets that average people could put their sweat and blood into in order to build economic independence. And, and, and you know, we've gone through periods where that was the dominant way of thinking about the role of government and other times when, you know, it's been more laissez-faire. Well, you know, all through the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, this idea that it, the role of government was to provide opportunity was pretty much the driving force of the federal government. And you think about things like the GI Bill, right, which were provided, sure. yeah. uh, low, you know, low-interest you know, low loans, grants, and so forth for both homeowner buying a home and getting a college degree. Or you think about the, the uh, Higher Education Act that for the first time uh, made it possible for anybody of any, uh, from any income or background to be able to afford to go to college, to get the skills they needed to to make it in this, to make it into the middle class. Round about 
late 1970s, early 1980s, the country got hit with a combination of inflation, recession, and international economic competition. And it really threw off the country. There was real sense of the old rules aren't, the old ways of doing things aren't able to handle this combination of crises. And a new way of thinking about uh, the role of government came to the fore, a more laissez-faire idea. Again, one that might have been familiar to people in the 1890s or 1920s uh, that said, look, uh, government, any government restraint on the private sector is going to reduce our prosperity, put a drag on growth. Uh, the best thing we can do for the economy is to take the government's hands off of it. Right. And really both parties bought into that. Uh, you know, Jimmy Carter was the first with his deregulation of the airline and uh -huh. trucking and other industries. But then Ronald Reagan came and really made it the centerpiece of his administration, ending, for instance, uh, more or less, uh, the federal government's antitrust enforcement uh, policies. And then Bill Clinton and and uh, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and and George W. Bush and Barack Obama all kind of hewed in their own way. There were always, you know, Democrats a little bit more um, focused on government as having a role, the economy, Republicans less. But there was definitely a sense in both parties that, you know, we government does best by governing least when right. it came to Wall Street and so forth. Well, you know, it's a very different world today, right? Um, we had the Great Recession, and then we had Occupy Wall Street, and then we had um, the Tea Party that almost, uh, you know, uh, uh, upset the international markets by uh, getting America to default on its debt. And then we had, you know, Donald Trump, who threw out the, the old laissez-faire playbook and was, you know, said, I'm going to protect Social Security and Medicare, and he spent a lot of money and... Um, was going to do infrastructure and all that. And then we had, um, you know, all, all, the January 6th and, 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 uh, and, and, and we've had this coming together of, of revolt politically on both sides, Bernie Sanders on one side, uh, Donald Trump on the other, but also economically a kind of recognition that, Big corporations have gotten too big, too powerful. And you see it on both sides, uh, more on the Democrat than mm. the Republican, but on both sides. Interesting. I there, there is a lot there. And, you know, neoliberalism is, uh, you know, kind of libertarian. And I, I've seen people ten, generally on the right who, who define the term freedom as enabling corporations to do whatever the heck they want without any environmental or financial restrictions whatsoever. That is the, the sum of the meaning of the word freedom. And, uh, you know, just, just letting them do whatever the heck they want and somehow believing in some sort of trickle down, <laughs> which of course never works. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's interesting that, you know, it has been embraced by all powers and certainly the two parties 
uh, I know this will come as a surprise, are interested in developing campaign funding. And where does that campaign funding come from? It comes from big corporations who like to make a lot of money and don't like to be restrained at all. So both parties have been, you know, interested in pleasing their sponsors. What a surprise. So what are the signs now? It's interesting that we're starting to to back away from neoliberalism. I'm not I'm not sure the people on the streets, the January 6th people uh, and, and others on the right really get how much of a divergence from the, the intent of our framers uh, neoliberalism really is. I, I, what, what signs do you see that the, the two parties are starting to back away from it? And of course, we have to talk about what new direction might be available after that. Well, you know, on the Republican side, um, it is more in language than in deed. Yeah. Um, one has to say, um, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy, the new uh, right. uh, uh, speaker, uh, when asked uh, last fall about some demand by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, quit. I didn't know the Commerce was still around. Right. And he was playing to an anti-corporate thread in conservative thinking that 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 makes itself apparent in the support on the right for cracking down on tech monopolies and other forms of monopoly. Um, uh, the the anger at what they call woke capitalism. Um, Ron DeSantis uh, going after Disney. These are the kinds of things you just did not see the Republican Party do over the last 40 years. Interesting. To, to, as a class, go after the titans of industry. Now, you know, a lot of it is performative. Um, uh, a lot of it is as filtered through conservative visions of their own oppression. Um but they're playing to a base, the, the, the Trump base, the, the base that Trump identified and grew. It was there all the time, of course, that, you know, has no love for the corporate sector. This is an anti-elitist, middle to working class group that, um, you know, is living with. Uh, the same predatory behavior that the rest of us are living with when it comes to certain kinds of uh, corporate actions. And, uh, and, um, and so, but on the other hand, these same GOP leaders have come up and been schooled in the world of, of, of sort of Ronald Reagan's world where, you know, the, uh, Corporate interests were one of the three legs of the stool of 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 conservative power, and mm -hmm. and so there's you get a lot of talk by people like Josh Hawley yeah. right. about how the future of the GOP is running uh, is running toward the working class and away from the corporate elite, huh. and you know the fact that that the Republicans have done better in the last uh, few cycles with. African American and Hispanic voters yes. who are, you know, predominantly working class, disproportionately 
working class is evidence that Josh Hawley's right about what is in the interest of the Republican Party. And yet the Republicans have a very hard time putting meat on the bones, actually supporting policies that economically would benefit the working class. Um, you know, just yesterday or the day before, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy uh, green lighted a vote in Congress that would impose a 30 percent sales tax right on, on the whole country and get rid of the income tax. I mean, that is just you, you can't think of a more more of a caricature of an anti-working class policy. So the Republicans are really uh, betwixt and between. Oh, but, there's, but there's nevertheless, you can see the cracks in the earth on that side. Well, the fact that they're that they're even talking about it and using those terms. I mean, it's true that and, and it's kind of puzzled me as a, a traditional liberal, uh, the uh, the, the using the words anti-elitism uh, by the by the Trump right, uh, they they believe it. They they I think that's kind of what, what we're talking about here is a shared, believe it or not, kind of vision. Are the Republicans doing it? Are the Democrats doing it? That's another question. And we're gonna you know talk about what might be possible. The you know anti-elitism runs runs kind of deep and. I, I do think, and we won't go down this rabbit hole too much, but that uh, uh, the blatant elitism of, of Hillary Clinton back in 2016 uh, certainly uh, blew a lot of oxygen on the fire that was, that was happening, the anti-elitist uh, uh, sentiment that there is. For those who may have just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, uh, we're doing an interesting show today. Our guest today is Paul Glastris, editor-in-chief of The Washington Monthly, which has a Big new issue about uh, the concept of civic republicanism. What can really unite us, really unite us in America these days? And I do think it's interesting. I, I, it always has puzzled me about this anti-elitism. It, it's, it's nothing really new. There's been anti-elitism for a long time in the uh, 19th, 20th, and now 21st century. There's... There's this attraction to an autocratic government. In Spanish, they call it a cadillo, somebody coming in on a, on, on a white horse and knight in shining armor. Uh, a, a, they're, they're, people want uh, somebody like Hungary's Viktor Orban or Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump. Uh, there's a, a it, it comes out of, I guess, the, the, con the, the, the context of a breakdown in faith in neoliberalism. I, I don't like authoritarianism one bit. I prefer democracy very strongly. What feeds the hunger for this authoritarianism? And I wonder how it can be addressed, or if it can be. Well, of course, this was one of the central topics that obsessed the framers. How do you structure a republic that doesn't fall into oligarchy mm -hmm. or dictatorship. They were, you know, great uh, students of ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, they knew, um, you know, the original uh, writings of, of 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 Pericles and Plutarch and 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 you know all who came after. Um, and they 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 worked very hard to think through what form of government would be would form a stable republic and not fall they, they knew that the 
tendencies mm. of the ancient republics and democracies was to fall into this. And under what they looked at the conditions that led to it, they looked at the types of constitutions these previous republics and democracies had, and they looked at the basic terrain of America and what made it different than it, previous republics. And the and one of the main things they look they they came to understand is that America, unlike England or France or anywhere else in in the world at the time, had broad-based prosperity. The rich weren't that rich by comparison to the elite of France or England. And the poor were relatively few and their poverty wasn't permanent. Um, the bulk of Americans lived on farms or in, you know, they were they were traders, small traders, or they were blacksmiths or whatever, coopers, mm -hmm. and they owned a little piece of land or they owned a little business and they grew their own food and they sold their their excess and that's how they lived. And so they studying the ancients said the most stable form of republic is one with a broad base of prosperity like America had. And um, if people are bought in, they have independence of means, right? They're not answering to some lord. They have a stake in um, it, yes. They have a stake in, in their community. Yes. And they have enough leisure time and enough education to keep up with public affairs. They will be the bulwark between the elite who are always grasping for more power mm -hmm. and the poor who are always desperate for help. The middle class wants neither a ton of help nor to oppress was their view. Um, well, what's happened today is we've had just a very, very hard 40 year hit, 50 year hit to the middle class. Okay. Now the middle class is a big place. The upper middle class has done quite well. The lower middle class has done very poorly. The decimated. working class decimated, decimated, yeah. and and you know, right on cue as the founders would have predicted, uh, folks are looking to a dictator to save them. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So if, if you want to undercut authoritarianism, the 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 formula of the founders, and I say the founders, I mean, you know, virtually all of them agreed on this on this basic premise. They had different means of. Of, of getting there, you need to have opportunity for people to have independent, decent livelihoods. Um, and so, so uh, I think a lot of policymaking right now, even if it's not consciously mm. in touch with th this tradition of, of, of the founders, and it's the same tradition that Abraham Lincoln and the radical Republicans turned to, it's the same tradition that the progressives in the 1920s uh -huh. and teens turned to. It's the same tradition that FDR turned to. This idea that we government has an affirmative responsibility to provide opportunity for people to live decent lives and that our democracy depends on it. Um, that's, that's what we're talking about. And I do find th there's that group of people that, you know, like, this ain't working. We need a, a strong dictator to come in and, and you know, uh, drain the swamp and, and just have him. It's always a him in charge here. Uh, and, and 
at the same time, there's this, and you see it too, a lot of young people today, millennials and Gen Z, whatever the heck that is, they see that the old economic order is indeed failing. And from their worry about what's in store for them in the next few years, there's this commonly held knee-jerk anti-capitalism, pro-socialism, and mm -hmm. they appear to be the only choices. Do you, do you see any signs that this demographic might be open to something less black and white than dictatorship versus, you know, European-style socialism? I do. Good. Um, I certainly <laughs> hope that they will. Yeah. Um, as, as the parent of millennials. Me too. Uh, <laughs> and somebody who, who has, yeah, right? And uh -huh. somebody who uh, has been, you know, hiring from, you know, the 20-somethings for many years, um, you know, there's no question that there's been a sea change in the attitude of young people toward um, toward our economic system. And um, they are just far more uh, open to Scandinavian-style socialism yes. than certainly our generation was um you know outside of the of the of the left uh you know our, our generation was much more comfortable with capitalism yes but you know capitalism was a different beast we had a middle class yes we did <laughs> right i yes. mean you think about the 1990s it was the great era of entrepreneurship and people were starting businesses and solving the world's problems with their software um, today, these kids are living with predatory software monopolies, right, that are, you know, letting the Russians disrupt our elections and, you know, uh, 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 spying on their every move. And yes. they're appalled by it. And rightly so. You and I have a memory and experience yes. of a different capitalism. They do not. Um, mm. and, and, you know, they, they, it, it, I think it remains to be seen if they can come to believe that a different form of capitalism is possible. Wow. Yeah. They, they, skepticism runs rampant. I, and I understand it for the reasons you state, uh, that, uh, that technology is not exactly their friend. Always appropriately looking well you know they have they have it they're torn about it right they are completely uh tied to their phones yeah thank you but they, they <laughs> but they're also aware of the predation of, of yes. those phones they're yes. trying to negotiate that and you know they, they they have a kind of um deep skepticism about capitalism but they all want to own food trucks Right. Yeah. And 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 they have a deep entrepreneurial bent, at least the young people that I know. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, in that there is hope. Right. They, they are. Yes. They are no different in some ways from, you know, any other generation of Americans. But but they've you know, there's a there, you know, they just not experienced uh, a very sound and rewarding economy. Yeah, that's for sure. And there have been a lot of different experiments through the, the centuries now. And as you say very clearly, and I, I, I know this to be true, just my, my opinion here, there cannot be real democracy, a genuine republic 
real civic freedom without widespread economic security. If you if you don't have economic security, you are not free. Some have proposed right. a guaranteed basic income, an idea which was floated in the 2020 election, but duh, kind of went over like a lead balloon. It never gained traction in the early 20th century uh, progressive era and in FDR's presidency. We we saw efforts uh, to, as you write, that, that were intended to alleviate the failures of a capitalist economy, not fix capitalism. This approach, yes, it had significant success back then. Is it no longer good enough to address the instability of today's economy? Well, you know, again, going back to the neoliberal thing, starting in the late 70s, um, government was still very involved in many ways, but on on the economy, both parties kind of let it roll, right? We let the banks grow to gargantuan size. Yeah. We, 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 you know, refused to any regulation of the internet. Um, uh, uh, you know, that we just didn't um, enforce antitrust laws. Um, and, and so, uh, we had economic growth, but the economic growth tilted more and more toward oligopoly. And we have market after market after market now where one, two, three, four players dominate 60, 80% of the market. Yeah. And yes. in a one third decline in the number of startups, right? We, we think of ourselves as the most entrepreneurial people uh, I think culturally we are, but as manifest in starting businesses, we are clearly not. And that has happened in the last 40 years since we stopped enforcing antitrust mm. uh, policy. Um, and, and, and so, so uh, you know, what happens when you're a worker, an employee, and there are 10 businesses that you could work for given your skill set? Well, you can go from one to the other and get your wages bid up. Now, what happens if there's two or one, right? If you live in a small city and your expertise is fixing, you know, construction equipment and there's one dealer, right? One guy, one mm. company that owns all five dealers and, you know, you want to raise, you go to your boss, you say, hey, I want to raise. And he says, well, you know. Uh, good luck to you. You're not yeah. going to get it here. Right. And, and where do you go? Right? How do you get your? How to get away? So, so this hurts wages. It hurts, you know, entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are where most of the jobs are created, right? So, so, um, and and now we're seeing that it it leads to inflation, right? A lot of the inflation we're seeing is uh, companies like the airlines, like the meat packers. Uh, you, you know, rent car dealers that um, because of the disruptions of the supply chain started raising prices and um, uh, found that they could get away with it. And they were raising prices well in excess of, of inflation and making record profits. Yes. So, so, you know, it's a, a very, very bad situation that we have. And, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but you know, some of that work has begun under the Biden administration. That's the good news. 
I definitely want to talk about what the Biden administration is doing. And I'm going to put in a little plug here for a future show. My uh, Gen Z, I think, daughter is now a law student and has a professor who uh, teaches about antitrust. I hope I can get him in the future because people don't have any idea what that is. But it's really important. OK, let's what is the Biden administration his style may, you know, he's not bombastic like Reagan or Trump or even Obama, but he's getting some things done. What about that, uh, t taking on that issue that, that you're talking about here? What specifically has he done? And then we'll get to the idea of, uh, of, of civic republicanism. So in a way that I don't think a lot of progressives expected, Joe Biden, right has moved at federal economic policy um, quite a distance away from the old neoliberal order. Um, you know, he just passed, a, well, I don't know, half a trillion, three quarters of a trillion dollar legislation to encourage chip manufacturing in the United States. Um, and that came with restrictions on technology to China. Back, you're old enough to remember back the debates in the 1980s over what they called industrial policy. This is heavy duty industrial policy. This is, you know, the industrial policy we had in World War II, where the federal government takes a, you know, a, a, a heavy hand yes. in, in guiding um, key industries and, and, making sure that supply chains are there for our economy to thrive and not be blackmailed or, you know, have to get rid of choke points. So that's just one example. And it's a big one of, of how Biden has moved at least the democratic party, because Republicans are not in favor of this uh, in a, in a, in a direction that you can't imagine another president doing it at earlier moment. Absolutely. I, but, I, but, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I'm surprised I've become a big fan. I didn't support him here in the New Hampshire primary, but yeah, he's doing a lot of stuff. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, and then on, on a whole range of other things, um, again, I, I don't call this, um, you know, th this is not the... He, he he's he's not sort of following a Bernie Sanders approach here, mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it is it is a a radical in the sense of the modern era approach of ratcheting up enforcement of antitrust statutes. Um, he is going, you know, the, the the Department of Justice is going after Google and its lock on and Facebook on their lock on advertising. Um, they're, 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 they're looking at um, going after uh, pharmacy uh, benefit managers and their system of, you know, essentially bri bribery uh, in the, in the moving of, of pharmaceuticals. Uh, they, they, these are the, the companies that, that, that your insurance company contracts with for you to get your medicines. Um, he passed, he, he wrote a executive order. I think it was in 2021, um, basically 
telling all of his cabinets, all of his departments, look for ways of using existing antitrust authority to make markets more competitive. Um, and the most recent example uh, uh, at the Federal Trade Commission, which is a, has been a kind of a backwater agency, but that actually statutorily has tremendous power and is now run by a woman named Lena Khan, a, a young uh, uh, Yale law grad who, by the way, used to write for me. Um, uh, and she's doing all kinds of things with the statute of power she has. Most recently, she wants to outlaw non-compete clauses. And for your listeners who, who don't know what that is, if you leave employment, with, if you get hired as a condition of being hired, you have to sign right. a piece of paper that says if you leave, you won't work in that industry for X number of years or within X hundred miles of your employer. And, you know, these are have always been questionable. California became the, the boomingest state in the union and outlaws these things. But they've grown tremendously. One out of five employees have has has signed them. Wow. And they really limit the, the ability of the average person to go out and get a better job at a better wage. Um, it locks you in. It's a kind of indentured servitude, <laughs> if you will. Uh, and and here are the here the president the president of the United States personally gets steamed up about this. It's really interesting. You you know look up the on Google him talking about this. He this is personal to him. So so you know these are just a few examples of of where the Biden administration is breaking from. 40 plus years of 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 uh, of policy by the, the the concentration of wealth and power it does limit freedom quite a bit for the millions of other americans so if for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a key element of keeping democracy alive really is economic freedom and the lack of uh, a, a dictatorship from the few and the powerful. Our guest today is Paul Glastris, editor-in-chief of Washington Monthly. Fascinating new uh, series, March, uh, January, February, and March issues uh, talk about the concept of Civic republicanism as maybe something that's behind all this stuff that we can get back to. So if neither neoliberalism nor reining in the blatant excesses of unfettered capitalism by itself are sufficient to meet the challenges, let's talk about the term promoted by your Washington Monthly series, civic republicanism. I hadn't heard that term before. What is it in the context of what we're talking about? And we could talk the rest of the hour about that for sure. Yeah, no, I look, you can, I'll, I'll talk your ear off. Your, your listeners will be <laughs> nodding off. Of I get tired. Uh, so this is a term, it's an archaic term, honestly. Nobody uses it anymore. But it would have been familiar, you know, to Thomas Jefferson, to Abraham Lincoln, to Woodrow Wilson, um, it is, it is the concept that a government in a republic, in a democracy, has the obligation not only to protect the average person's right to vote, but the average person's right to make a respectable living. That 
there is a connection between our economic well-being and the health of our democracy. That you can't have a democracy that doesn't have an active and informed citizenry with a stake in the outcome of the government. And and that that is best achieved that that a stable government, it's what we were talking about in the beginning. A stable government is best achieved if the vast majority of the public has independent an independent source of income and wealth. Um, it can be in the form of a job, but there's got to be, you know, some capacity to get another job if you lose that one, right? If you don't have the capacity to get another job, then you're under the thumb of a master, right? And that's not freedom, right? right? It could be in the form of a small business. It could be in the form of skills that you can take from venue to venue and always make a living. Um, it could be in the form of stocks and bonds that bring you uh, a return. It could be the form of an, uh, you know, your home is a form of independent wealth. Um, and it's no accident that America, that Americans believe in home ownership, mm. um, probably more than most uh, uh, people in industrial democracies do. Um, it harkens back to this this tradition in American political thinking that um, average people should own their own assets so that they're not under the under the control of larger forces. They've got independence, um, and and when they are that way, they and you know when they have the ability to control their time, right? Mm. They're not working 12 hours a day for somebody else. They have time to reflect and relax and raise their families and be involved in their community through volunteer efforts and read the papers and read books and become informed and, and thereby be able to contribute to the political life of their community and their nation. That's what civic republicanism is. That was the vision. Goes back to the ancient Athenians. Um, it goes back to the Roman Republic. It is what the founders had in their minds, and it is a far cry from what we have today. That's for sure. And and your magazine uh, lists some of the successful economic reforms, examples of civic responsibility, civic republicanism in our history, starting with the little known. As you mentioned earlier, Northwest Ordinance of 1787 and going well into the 20th century. Some examples. Well, the Northwest Ordinance is an extraordinary piece of legislation that you may vaguely remember from high school. It was the first one of the first laws passed by the, the first Congress of the United States. Hmm. And it, it took the territory of western New York, northern Ohio, northern Pennsylvania, northern uh, in, into into northern uh, Michigan, I think even into Wisconsin, um, uh, and said, "This land, you know, and let us be honest, it, it was it was Native American land, although yes. many members of, uh, of the uh, of Native Americans had by then died of of diseases that the 
uh-huh. Europeans brought. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this land is not going to be sold to speculators. Um, it's going to be carved up into, you know, I think it was 80 acre increments in a grid pattern with roads and at the crossroads would be towns. And in the towns, it was mandated that would be free public education, three elementary schools, post offices, um, that the land would be sold, not given away, but at a at a modest price and and could not be purchased en masse by speculators. And this is very interesting. Blacks, it, it barred slavery and blacks could buy land. That was literally the founding generation's first big piece of legislation. That gives you an idea of what they had in mind for America. And oh, by the way, Southerners voted for it, or a lot of them did. I mean, we don't have a whole lot of Northwest ordinances in our in our history, but because you know, so often we we did not not only cut out African Americans, but uh, and Native Americans, but you know, actively oppressed them. Oh yeah, but. But the land grant, so the Morale Act of of of, of eighteen sixty seven was it? Um, the created the land grant colleges, right? Um, and you know, all the a lot of the big college state flagship universities were created by the federal government by granting states land that they could sell to build universities. And these universities were not for the elite. They were for farmers and mechanics mm. to improve their ability to, you know, produce higher yields on their farmland, or you know, teach them better metallurgy so that they could do their crafts better. It's what built the powerhouse of the American economy. I mean, even today, the the you know, you know, Ohio Ohio states and and universities of Illinois and and Nebraska and so forth. These are very, very powerful engines of upward mobility and technological uh, advancement for our country. They were not for the, the, the wealthy. They were for yeah. average people. And on and on, the GI Bill, all, oh, all of these, Bill, yeah. you know, uh, 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 the, I, I mentioned the Higher Education uh, Act. There was a piece of legislation passed in, I think, 1961, where the federal government funded the building of community colleges. These are the kinds of things that are animated by the spirit of civic republicanism, of providing average people with the means by which they can make their own livings. I wonder about connecting with people. I mean, there's a lot of Trumpers out there, and I I can understand. I I was in uh, an area of uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, where I could get a sense that people felt like, yeah, I've worked all my life, I played by the rules, and I'm just not getting ahead. And they turned en masse to Trumpism, you know, here's a here's a guy who can just fix it. I wonder about connecting with those people. It, it strikes me as a very high hurdle to leap. What's your sense of the prospects of this actually happening, making this idea resonate with the masses of, of alienated people who became hardcore Trumpers? These folks are feeling a lot of the same sense of having been screwed by the system that your kids and my kids are feeling. And if your kids are are like my kids, my kids are way on the left. They don't agree on anything culturally, right? 
with the Trumpers, but the sense that the economy is suboptimal and in fact predatory and that the powers that be have have sold us down the river. Boy, both sides feel that, or at least huge constituencies on both sides. Uh-huh. What would be lovely, because I'm, I'm not naive, what would be lovely is if both parties were competing to offer policies to reverse these problems. That's what happened in, in the progressive era, right? You had Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft and Woodrow Wilson all trying to out anti-monopoly the other. Um, and uh, there's hints of that on the Republican side. Interesting, because uh, they had a lot of disagreements between those three on other things. They certainly did. I, I, I mean, you know, their visions of the role of the federal government differed in, in important ways, but they they also agreed on a lot of things. They agreed on yeah. the need to professionalize federal agencies and civil service, and they agreed on the pathologies of, of trusts and big business. So th- there was also a lot of agreement. And both parties don't have to agree on everything to get something done, Yes, <laughs> uh, as we saw with the infrastructure bill. One of the things that really seems to unite young people is the real fear of climate change, of not being able to do anything about that. Mm-hmm. And it's a scary, scary prospect. M- might this practice of civic republicanism actually offer ways to effectively address this threat to the earth itself? Well, you know, uh, that's a really good question. I don't know that I have a considered answer to that. Mm. Pulling people together as, you know, we're on the same side. Exactly, exactly. I, I think of what would motivate a whole lot of people that you and I probably know to get involved, to do something actively themselves with by putting, say, solar panels on their roof or supporting policies to make that easier. Right. Or voting for candidates who are trying to implement policies that, that advance lower carbon footprint. Um, all of that is you know, good, solid political involvement of the kind that is healthy, right? We, the, the theory of democracy is that even though we all disagree, we can deliberate amongst ourselves, bringing with us information and ideas that individually, not, you know, maybe others might not have, and pooling those ideas come to some consensus which is a wiser choice than would otherwise be the case if a small number of people made that decision. And I can't, I can't help but think that uh, if the government were to make uh, photovoltaic panels cheaper and more available to people from every uh, income scale, I have a feeling that would be a little bit popular. It would lower everybody's electric rates, which are sometimes crazy high, and enabled some more freedom. So it seems like it, it kind of fits, you know, it's, it, it's like the, the 21st century version of the Northwest Ordinance in some ways that, uh, you know, give people an oh, opportunity. Oh, yeah. I mean, here's a way to think about, by the way, you know, let us acknowledge that uh, Joe Biden just did that, right? With the uh, uh, poor, poorly named Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, well, it's really a green energy act. And yeah. what it's going to do is make it, you know, way more affordable for any of us to put on solar panels or have geothermal put in or, you know, insulate our homes or buy an electric car. That's the whole idea, right? Or a big part of the idea. And I would would think even Trumpers might like that 
they don't want to pay high electric bills. You know, maybe there's some way of yeah. doing it. If the government... Well, you know, you, you'd think, but that, that, that you know, the, the way their side works, every success of liberals is a, uh, no. a loss to conservatives. So... Um, we will. We will see. I, I, my my guess is that they will come around. But you 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 know, I, I've guessed wrong before. But but <laughs> let's just go back and, and let me. You, you mentioned solar panels on your roof. You you know, in many jurisdictions, you get some tax right. benefits and outright grants to put solar panels on your roof, and then any energy you don't use, you can sell back to the right. utility. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings a stream of income. There is no better example of civic republicanism, right, of encouraging of the government providing help for individuals to build assets that pay dividends over the long term. Right. That is literally the equivalent of of land in the northwest corridor. Right. In a small sense. The culture war is a big thing, and what I, I I have a sense that really boils down to is they're getting ahead. I'm not. We got to fight them. If everybody gets an opportunity, maybe that culture war would have less of a of an attraction. I don't know. Well, now here's where here's where I think you you put your finger on the you put your finger on the third rail, right? <laughs> what I'm talking about are benefits that aren't tailored necessarily to class right. or race yeah. available to everybody yes you know where they entail some reciprocity on the part of the recipient right uh-huh. um here's a tax credit you've got to go put some of your own money and then you can buy the solar panel right. and you've got to maintain it right it's not just a free stream of income because you happen to exist right? right it's the difference between a guaranteed basic income and let's say the earned income tax credit that people of modest incomes get from the federal government for working right so this is where it becomes tricky on the left look there's good there's good arguments for a guaranteed basic income especially for very poor people yes but it runs counter to this civic Republican tradition that I'm talking about, and I think becomes politically a lot more difficult to pull off. The question is, should that be where we spend our political capital, or should we spend it in areas where there is wide, more widespread agreement, and thereby have some chance of narrowing these political divisions? On this show, I'm always seeking reasons for optimism. And you write, I'm convinced that America's best days are ahead of us. Oh, that's music to my ears. I love to hear that. What can you say about that? And and there, talk about this new issue of, of the Washington Monthly, the uh, January, February, March. How can people take a look at it? The issue has a, a, a group of stories from some very eminent writers, yes. including James Fallows, long national correspondent oh, yeah. of the Atlantic, Nicholas Lemon uh, of, of The New Yorker and former dean of the Columbia Journalism School, my my good buddy and partner, Phil Longman and Barry Lynn of the Open Markets Institute, they are forwarding different policies within this civic Republican tradition. Phil has a magnificent piece of writing called Everyday High Prices, 
And it is about how government to encourage the growth of discounters, big box discounters back in the 70s and 80s, undermined a piece of depression era legislation called the Wright-Patman Act that made small retailers more competitive with the big boys by insisting that prices from suppliers, let's say at uh-huh. camera, that the little guy could sell at the same price as the big guy, yeah. all things being equal. Boy. And we and you know we got rid of that. And not only did it do what we kind of already know, which is it kind of put the little guys out of business. Yeah. The theory was we were all going to get lower prices, which we did for a while until we didn't. Yeah. Because the, the, these guys figured out that once they locked up the market, they could raise prices all they wanted. <laughs> um, and and so it was sort of the myth of discounting, as it were. And there's laws on the books, the Wright Patman Act, that um, the FTC is now looking at beginning to enforce in order to bring down prices and make it more possible for independent grocers, independent pharmacies and so forth uh, to be able to serve their neighborhoods and their and their communities on a fair basis. Um, Barry Lynn. Yes. uh, A brilliant piece on what the Biden administration has already done and what it should do on our supply chain mess. Mm. And our supply chain mess really is an outgrowth of monopoly. We've allowed sector after sector to consolidate. Um, What happens when they consolidate? Well, you have companies more or less owned by hedge funds Mm. saying, let's get rid of all these redundancies. Let's fire all these workers. Let's rip up all the railroad tracks that aren't making a lot of money. Let's mothball the airplanes and we'll get maximum profit. And then you get a a crisis and suddenly you don't have enough, you know, uh, employees. They don't have enough airplanes. It ripped up all the railroad track. And suddenly we get supply chain problems and inflation and the country almost uh, goes into recession. There's a lot of strands that are pulled together in this issue and uh, fascinating reading and a very hopeful subject that maybe America's best days are ahead of us. Um, I hope so. Yeah, we could talk about this another hour at least. Paul Glastris, editor-in-chief of The Washington Monthly. Take a look for it. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, it's good to hear. There's some possibilities. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. Wonder what in this world we are